Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to... Oh, no, the best <laughs> nuclear barbarians. <laughs> welcome back to Decouple. Three, two, one, all that stuff I usually do. Emmett, um, it is uh, wonderful having you back. It's been far too long. Thank you for uh, making the digital pilgrimage. Yeah, I feel like I should be introducing you. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Chris Kiefer, the Maple Leaf Kid, the Canadian Conqueror, the man who is so large and in charge that if you walk in on him with your lights, uh, with your wife, you shut the lights off and apologize. Oof. How is it going, dude? Canada has flipped. It must feel great. <laughs> I need you as my hype man. The crazy thing, Emmett, is that we've rumble, young man, rumble. We we have never um, met in in the three dimensions. Uh, that's going to change. I think we're both going to the breakthrough dialogues. That's right. So I'm really excited for that. But you know, enough of uh, enough of this banter, uh, which is always fun for us and probably a little boring for the guests. Maybe, <laughs> maybe with the exception of the kind of enthusiasm you're bringing here, I love it. Um, but Emmett, um, you have been on the podcast, but it's been a while. Um, you are the host of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Um, you're a really prolific writer, commentary. I'm going to just say it. I think you're an intellectual, bro. Um, and it, in, ter- in terms of, um, you know, having this, this hearkening back like hundreds of years to a classical education where people like read and studied Greek and Latin and, and you know, the classics. Um, I don't know if you if you read Greek or Latin, but you certainly have this kind of basic basis in in classical history, classical literature. And what I find fascinating about your writing is I think it brings this, these layers to it without it going over anybody's head. So huge props on what you do. Just give us like the, the Coles notes and the latest things you've been up to. And then we are going to dive into uh, the topic of this podcast, um, how to blow up a pipeline. We're not talking about Nord Stream. We're not talking Seymour Hirsch, Cy Hirsch here. Uh, we got something much more uh, weird and wonderful and wild for you. But first off, yeah, Emmett, just give us a quick little update on, on what's new in Emmett Pennyland. Yeah, I mean, I'm still the editor-in-chief of Grid Brief. So if people want curated daily energy news for free, they can go sign up there at gridbrief.com. As you said, I'm at the Nuclear Barbarian Substack. That should be easy to find. Um, you can find all this stuff on my website, emmettpenny.com. Um and uh, yeah, I'm a contributing editor at Compact Magazine, and that's where I published this piece that uh, we're about to talk about. So that's pretty much what's going on with me. Right on, right on. So indeed, um, this piece, you know, we had talked in the past about doing an episode on uh, this thinker, Andreas Malm, um, who is, I'm not sure if he's, he's in the humanities, I would guess, uh, given... You know, what he's in look. he's in a very um, unrigorous subfield of geography, which is I think part of what has allowed him to rise to the top um, and stand out. Is that there just really aren't a lot of barriers because there's not. Uh, at least this is what I heard from a geographer friend. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we talked about covering this guy's thoughts. I think it was an article in which he was saying that the ideal political system to respond to to climate change was actually war communism, hearkening back to the very early days of the Russian Revolution, extreme rationing, extreme direction of the means of production. Um, not a not a beautiful time um, from my you know weak grasp of history. And you know, I asked you to come on and talk about it, and you were like, "Listen, like I don't even want to put any you know wood on the fire here. I don't want to light a candle in that dark echo chamber." Um, so let's just let it go. And, you know, I was a bit disappointed because I have a weird fascination with it. Um, we both have a, a bit of a background on the, on the political left. 
Um, and I'm still intrigued uh, by what's what's happening over there as I watch it distort itself um, and alienate itself further and further. Um, you know, I, I tweeted today about um, just thinking about, you know, Marx's theories of alienation, um, you know, alienation from the the, the products, um, alienation from maybe not liking to, to work, you know, with a machine and the machine imposing itself on how you work. But now it's like the left is just alienated from production entirely, um, you know, as it's, as it's jump ship from the factory floor to, uh, to the academy, to the lecture hall. Um, so anyway, um, I think we are kind of forced to now engage with Andreas Malm and his ilk uh, because inspired by his same titled book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, we now have a major, major motion picture. Um, I'm not sure how well it's doing at the box office, but you you watched it um, and wrote a brilliant re- brilliant review of it. I have been trying to stream that thing everywhere. I couldn't find it. I've had a lot of stuff going on personally. I haven't been able to go to the movie theater to watch it. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about your review, and maybe it's a good thing I haven't watched it because I won't bring such strong opinions to it. Um, but let's uh, let's jump on in. Um, maybe just give us an overview of what this movie is about, not Nord Stream. Yeah. So. Um, so the movie's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It is premised on a sort of apologia for eco-terrorism that Andreas Malm wrote a couple years ago of the same title. Um, for some reason, he seems to think in the book that if uh, there's enough like stochastic sabotage against the fossil fuel industry, that it will make the price of oil untenably high and also dissuade people from investing in it. Um, and so that should be sort of like the, uh, excuse me, the terroristic vanguard for eco-Leninism, um, I guess. And the so the uh, main woman who plays a character, Zoshidal, in this, uh, read the book with, I think, the director, uh, whose last name is Goldhaber, like in deep in the quarantine parts of COVID. And they decided to write this movie about a um, sort of motley crew of people that all get together to blow up a pipeline in the Permian Basin uh, for their own reasons um, to sort of like literalize what Malm was gesturing towards. And just to sort of like give people... People might be wondering, like, oh, how was this book by Malm received? And, I mean, he got, I think, a very flattering interview in The New Yorker with it. I think Ezra Klein even spoke highly of this book. Um, So it ended up getting way more due than I uh, expected. I think part of that also has to do with the fact that um, this discussion was happening around 2020, the summer of 2020 in America, where NPR was also favorably reviewing books called In Defense of Looting. Um, And there seemed to be like an overall agreement that the rule of law didn't really matter if you had the right feelings inside your heart. Um, And so I think, you know, maybe people have some like buyer's remorse now, uh, having come out of that like fever dream of a year or a couple years. But um, I haven't seen it, if that's true, based on the other reviews I've read, which seem to be like both uh, aesthetically and uh, morally very on board with what the film has to offer. Um, And so the premise of the film sort of works like this, right? You have a bunch of different characters from all different walks of life. Um, You have Zochitl, sort of the ringleader, 
and her best friend Theo, both of them grew up in a refinery town in Southern California. And Theo has a rare form of leukemia that can be like contracted, I guess, living near a refinery town. Uh, Zoshidal's mother dies in a freak heat wave in California, um, which is brought on by climate change. Uh, you have like the white noise of the news pop in and out and sort of stoke uh, environmental catastrophism. Um, like all weather is climate change, right? Is basically sort of the premise of the film, uh, at least in the background. And then you have these other characters like Sean, who is a in college with Zochitl when she gets back from her mother's funeral. And they have, uh, they're doing like a divest campaign on campus. And both she and Sean are like, this is stupid. And this er very arrogant white guy is like, well, it's a big system. Like it's going to take a while to change. And they're basically like, fuck that. Like we need to like take this into our own hands. And so they make a plot to find people to help them do this sabotage in Texas. And that means bringing in Theo so she can get revenge for the leukemia that she's had, which by the way, she can't afford the meds to. Um, so one of the things that's sort of like unclear is like why fossil fuels are the real villain and not like the healthcare system, considering there does seem to be like some course of treatment that she could ostensibly have access to. Uh, but that's never really brought up uh one of the only critical voices of what they're about to do this act of terrorism they're about to commit is theo's girlfriend uh alicia um who is a working class black woman from la that cleans houses um and then you have logan and his girlfriend rowan uh and they're sort of like the punk white kids and rowan is something of a double agent spoiler alert uh she is sort of the person that you're not sure if she's working for the fbi or not uh throughout the film. And then you have, uh, who I think is the most interesting character, which is Forrest Goodluck's character, um, of Michael, who's indigenous, lives in the Dakotas, gets in fist fights with guys that are fracking there. Um, and it's just really, really angry and has like this unapologetic nihilistic violent streak. I should say that like Forrest Goodluck's performance is like head and shoulders above his peers. Had the film only been about that character, I probably wouldn't have written this review because it would have been an actually interesting film. But the emotional conceit of the film is that these people have been wounded in some way. And so now they get to do whatever they want and you're supposed to cheer them on. And one of those things is blow up a pipeline. And the thing that's been so great for most film reviewers about this film is that it reviews its ethical conundrums like for you. They have like incredibly stilted dorm room bong rip debates about the merits of nonviolent or violent action, um, which are all like quickly like dismissed. It's sort of like those are just there for show so that you can sort of say you did them and they don't bring up any real enduring tensions in the group. You know, nobody's made really uncomfortable. Like Alicia, who vo voices the most criticism and seems to be copped on, is only there because she loves Theo so much. And who gets her legs shattered uh, as they're trying to, like, tie a bomb to part of the pipeline. It seems to bring up, like, literally no tension between these people. So, like, emotionally, the movie doesn't make sense. It's really like the fossil fuel industry is evil. We need to get revenge. Laws don't matter because we're morally right. And we're going to do that. And we're going to do that because it's an act of self-defense 
against, and characters say this without irony and without any criticism in the film, billions will die if we don't start doing stuff like this. Um, and then after it's all said and done, Theo and Zoshidal successfully use Rowan to confuse the FBI in that it was just them and none of their friends, so all their friends get away, and they inspire, we find out, a bunch of other young people to start, I don't know, the first course of action for these people seems to be blowing up a yacht somewhere. Um, it it, sounds, like, it sounds like maybe it ends in kind of like a fight club, you know, uh, pastiche. Where yeah, it, right, yeah. So it's sort of, you know, and the, and the thing is they leave this flyer behind that says, um, you know, uh, it's, it's like, why have destroyed your property? And it's basically like, you know, you're a climate criminal and the law won't punish you, so I have to. Desperados, uh, what do you call that again? Yeah. That's not that, that's the wrong So word. that's that's the film. That's yeah. how to blow up a pipeline. Okay, okay. It's, I mean, this is like a, it's interesting that the, these ideas are proliferating, that they're being endorsed uh, by mainstream outlets. I mean, I don't, intellectual contagion is maybe the wrong way to put it, but you know, like I'm, I'm just a few things are coming to mind. I'm thinking of like the Anarchist Cookbook, which was maybe an FBI publication to help anarchists blow themselves up as they learn how to make bombs. Um, I'm thinking of you know maybe this is drawing on on the historical tradition of you know the Bader Meinhof gang um, in Germany, the Red Army faction, or in in America, the Weather Underground. Yeah, the Weather Underground. Yeah. Um, can you help me like tie it into those 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 movements and maybe some of the, the similarities and differences? Well, the similarities to the Weather Underground seem like pretty clear. Like, except for you first know, of all, what film, is the Weather Underground for those who aren't aware? So the Weather Underground was like basically a cadre of radical, uh, white, wealthy, highly educated lefties who blew up a bunch of stuff in the 60s. Uh, I think one of them also blew themselves up. Um, and this, this was in response to the, the Vietnam War. Um, the Vietnam War. They, they yeah. did, I mean, they did, yeah. like, I, I'm, they, there's, a, there's a movie about them. Um, I watched it a number of years ago and thought it was amazing and was kind of inspired. And I was like, I want to be in the weather underground. Um, I mean, there was some interesting stuff. Like they, they did reveal the COINTELPRO um, counterinsurgency kind of monitoring that was happening yes. by, by like raiding an FBI office, right, in the middle of the night and like stealing all this papers. It, like it was, it was some kind of romantic adventurism type stuff. Um, they caused a lot of property damage. I think Department of Defense infrastructure. Um, the only person I think who died in a bombing, as you mentioned, was someone um, trying to make a bomb. Blew and, themselves up in like the village in, in New York. That bomb was intended to be placed at a, a dance of officers. So that one was going to be like the big violent one that was going to kill a bunch of people. Anyway, I, I'm not I'm not like swinging to the defense of the Weather Underground, but I do remember um, and I'm trying to put myself like if I watched how to how to bomb a pipeline, uh, how to blow up a pipeline as a 18 year old, if, if that, you know, if I can transport myself in time from when I was 18 into this, this present moment, I'm not sure how I would uh, have responded to it again, given how I responded to the weather underground film. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also helps that Fugazi does the soundtrack for that weather underground film. So it sounds great. Um, I mean, I'm, so I'm very uh, disenchanted by the weather underground for various reasons. I think they were also involved in the drafting of the Port Huron statement, which is sort of like the manifesto for the new left and the pivot away from like a more typical class politics. Um, and, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Mark Rudd, who finked on them to the FBI or was a double agent, lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he would come do talks at the bookstore I worked at in Santa Fe. 
And like that dude was a deluded egotist who screwed over his friends, even if I don't like his friends. Like I think he's basically a guy who got highly rewarded for having zero morals. And that's how I feel about most of these people, except for the COINTELPRO thing. Like blowing up a dance of officers is pretty disgusting as an act to do. Um, and for some reason, they've just been given this uh, free pass and after – you know, however many years came back from living underground after all this stuff happened and walked into professorships at places like universities. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, almost all of them. It's, it's extraordinary because I think they basically were outlaws. Some of them for, you know, 15, 20 years at a time, I think when it was much easier, um, to have fake identities. Um, you know, like I I have no idea how this would work in our modern, you know, surveillance society. Um, but I did actually, I've met David Gilbert who was, um, he kind of stayed underground and ended up, um, being a getaway driver for a botched armed robbery. And now he's serving a life prison sentence in a, in a, in a U.S. prison. I, I met him. I like guess it's, it's interesting to have interacted with some of these people, but Bernard, I think it's Bernadette Thorne and some of the other ones, um, they, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, who I grew up around as a kid. Yeah. They turned themselves in just before September 11th and basically got amnesty, I think. Yeah. And so, and interestingly, um, Bill Ayers' sister-in-law ran a daycare where Shaza Boudin worked that I went to as a kid. And Shaza Boudin, again, is the... He was the DA in San Francisco that got thrown out for basically not doing his job. Right. Um, and yeah, like making it uh, essentially unpunishable to steal like under $800 or something. For yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. I don't know if that was exactly him but or however that whole situation worked. But yes, he was thrown out by his own constituents. Uh, for having a very soft on crime policy in part because he spent his whole life with his parents in prison because they like killed a cop during a Coke deal gone wrong and tried to throw their black friend under the bus for it. Um, And for some reason that's like this pitiable story that we're supposed to be like, Oh, poor Shaza. Okay. You know, so put put it, putting this weather underground thing aside, like there is, there's a kind of context for what is the kind of terrorist terrorism that is being, um, I guess. Yeah. Then there's the earth liberation front in the nineties, which like uh, Andreas mom specifically invokes in his book. Like I know I'm being hard on these people, but that's because no one else is Yeah, like, that's sort of my frustration with this is that um, this is, like what's being endorsed in this movie is like way worse than what happened on January 6th in America. Like, and I don't like what happened on January 6th, but if people actually did this, it would be way worse. You know, like that's, so what, that seems like unequivocally true to me. Okay. Walk us through that thesis. Yeah. So basically what they're saying, what they do is they're like, we want to jack up the price of oil. They basically want to do the mom plan. Like that's what they're going to do. I think that plan is stupid and it won't work because you can always buy oil from somewhere else that's willing to produce it. Like this makes zero sense as a plan. You know, there are almost moments where they might get some workers killed or something like that uh, and they evade that scenario. But the likelihood that you could really do this without environmental damage or like all of these other things that they somehow find the solution to in the film seems very, very low. Um, And again, like they bring it up for like a second. They're like, well, don't don't high oil prices like hurt poor people? And somebody just goes, revolutions are messy. And that's the end of that conversation, right? Like the point I bring up in the the review is that in America, we have a tradition of what's called antinomianism. And I think it's a very like morally respectable and long tradition that comes out of Protestantism in America. 
specifically. And it's the idea that there is a divine law of justice that is higher than the law of man. And you may not be freed from the law of man, but you are allowed to violate it in service of that higher good, right? So the two sort of canonical texts that come out of this movement are Henry David Thoreau's On Civil Disobedience and Martin Luther King's brilliant letter from Birmingham jail. And the difference between what's happening with these imagined terrorists and sort of MLK or Henry David Thoreau is that those guys believed in Christ. They believed in the redemption of, of the sacrifice of Christ. They had a whole horizon of human possibility and uh, a belief and enduring commitment and the sanctity of the soul and the importance of justice and the polity that was informed by the idea of this divine law. What we have in How to Blow Up a Pipeline is what uh, the very strange essayist Nick Land called in like 2007, transcendental miserabilism. And it's the idea that the neo-Marxists on the left have basically given up on the idea of seizing the means of production and freeing them for even greater expansion of our abilities and more or less resent capitalism for winning. Capitalism represents everything that they don't like. It represents alterations in what they think the timeline of history should be. And they're like, well, I didn't want growth anyway. I didn't want this anyway. The polar bears are dying and there's nothing that I can do which eventually cankers over the years up until the present day. And it's sort of a soft nihilism that's sort of like, it doesn't really matter if we're breaking the law. It doesn't really matter like if this plan isn't really even going to work uh, because I feel terrible and this is in self-defense. It's highest, it's, its main justification is if we don't stop using fossil fuels right now, billions will die um, and we're doing this in self-defense. So it is an idea, it's like, it's an antinomianism that holds bare life, meaning reducing life to its biological facts, like can you eat, can you sleep, like all of these things, uh, bare life as both its justification and its horizon. I describe it as the political vision of insects. Um, and I would say very, very different from the, I think, legitimate antinomian claims that men like Henry David Thoreau and Martin Luther King were making. And I juxtapose this antinomianism with a famous speech from a young Abraham Lincoln, his Lyceum address back when he was an Illinois uh, house rep. And at the time, there were a lot, there was a lot of mob violence, a lot of lynchings, a lot of things like that. And what he said is, when you take the law into your own hands like that, when the mobocratic, as he calls it, sensibility prevails, it reduces people's faith in the law and demoralizes them that the government by which we run our society and its constitution will have no friends or no friends strong enough to make sure that the system exists in perpetuity in a just way. And that, that the knock-on effects of this for society are incredibly high if you think that maintaining a republic is something worth doing. Now, it's clear that the characters in this book don't really, some of them are very honest about it. Like I said, the Michael character played by very well by Forrest Goodluck. Um, it's very clear. He doesn't want to rebuild anything. He just wants to destroy things. 
And he's not like, you can tell that there's something, he's very like broken inside. It's very actually interesting character. Um, You know, in part because Forrest Goodluck is acting like way beyond his lines, unlike almost every single one of his other peers in that movie. Um, But that's, that's really it in the nutshell. And I, and I say at the end of review, what's disturbing about this, like, I don't think people are going to go out and commit these crimes because of this movie. You don't think so? I really don't. Like, I think, well, I, it won't be because directly because of this movie. It will be because there's like an atmosphere of other things going on, right? Like, uh, I saw some monkey wrenching go on in the Permian Basin that was not this extreme after Standing Rock. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a lot of reasons why everybody was there. And it wasn't just because of the memes or the movies or whatever, um, you know, everybody had their own very highly complex sort of nuanced reasons, even if it was wrong, uh, to be there. So, uh, what, what, I, what does worry me is that, uh, you know, there's this old anarchist idea called the propaganda of the deed, where the terroristic violence will shock the public into a revolutionary state, right? Uh, and this is sort of the propaganda of the propaganda of the deed. And right now in America, we have an uptick of assaults on en- energy infrastructure, which are being committed by neo-Nazis. And that's disturbing to me. It's disturbing to me that it seems to be like, at least up for debate on the left, uh, that there might be some merits to that kind of strategy. Like the neo-Nazis are very clear. They want to demoralize society. They want to bring about a race war. You know, all the horrible things that you imagine they believe, they believe. And the left seems to want to demoralize society and bring about some sort of climate revolution or something. It's a little bit less clear. Um, And they also want credit for feeling bad about it the whole time. And that seems to be the major difference, like in their hearts. Just just very quickly, the neo-Nazis, are they the ones behind the, uh, like the grid substation attacks and... That, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So in Maryland, um, and I think in a couple other And places. how how significant is that as a phenomenon? It's been increasing every year for the last couple of years. Impact so on the grid? it's becoming a more frequent... Impact on the grid, I mean, there were a lot of... I don't know what... There was a substation in the southeast, I think in like Kentucky or Virginia or something like that. And I believe it was attacked, but I don't know by who. And it did leave people without their lights for a few days. And now there are all these debates about like... And especially in terms of cybersecurity as well, like what FERC is going to guarantee utilities get back for investing in grid security and stuff like that. So it's something people are talking about in the industry, right? Like it's that's how often it's happening. And so it's not like these things won't happen from the left. They could. I mean, um, I just don't like the sort of monocausal it's, to me, it would be sort of like saying that, like, the reason we don't build nuclear in America is because of the movie The China Syndrome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's That would be my – and I'm like, that's like – But build, building nuclear building true, nuclear, is, really. building nuclear is a lot harder than sabotage. And I, I just think it's such a, it's such a yes. direct kind of call to action. Uh, there are a lot of desperate people. Like, you know, I was in New York uh, with my girlfriend – couple months ago and um you know this is the land where we actually were there to visit the indian point power station which had been shut down the year before um and you know there was this group of you know well-intentioned young children with their fridays for future placards chanting hey hey ho ho climate change has got to go right and the kind of naivety of, of of political theory that's betrayed by that and i mean these are children so i don't hold it against them although they're being accompanied sure, yeah. and sort of marshaled and shepherded along by these gray-haired you know 
boomer environmentalists. Yeah, they have their chaperones. They right? have their chaperones. Yeah. But I mean, you can see why people are driven to um, more extreme action by just seeing the utter futility. I mean, that chant in and of itself, hey, hey, ho, ho, climate change has got to go. Like, obviously, that's futile. And I think they're not being inspired by, I think, the messages that, you know, frankly, folks like you and I and others in the nuclear advocacy community are after, which is this more constructive, pro-human, um, you know, decoupling vision, however we want to put it out there, right? Um, they're not hearing those or that's not, it doesn't fit into the sort of zeitgeist of their generation. I don't know. I, I can see this becoming a, a, a more significant source, particularly as we kind of head more into this nihilistic youth culture moment. It could be. I just don't think, I think that there will be larger forces of which things like this movie and this book are a part. You know, it is true. I know Janet Twenge has a book, I think that's her name coming out, called uh, Generations, which does sort of like, she's very good at sort of breaking down the, the data about how different generations feel. And so she goes through all the way from the baby boomers to Zoomers about, I think that book comes out next month, uh, about how they feel. Um, and I've only looked at some press material and some early like snippets from it. But I mean, it is true that the generation right after me, the Zoomers, more or less does not believe that the American project is worth continuing. Um, and I think there are a variety of reasons for that. Some are the way in which this country has lost its luster, uh, to say the least. I do frankly think that like just, you know, maybe this will be an unpopular thing to say uh, on decouple, but I do think just like letting people ride in the streets for months for like no fucking reason is not a good thing for society to do frequently. You know, like, but that's, it's like, if you're say a middle-class family that owns a small business in like a downtown and it gets destroyed and you can't pay, like no one comes back to fix that. Right. Like there's no, there's no accountability for that. And that's not the only thing that's going on. Like I said, like it's uh purchasing power for zoomers is going to be less than even for millennials. There are going to be a lot of out external forces that massage people into a bleaker view that isn't entirely unjustified. And so what's important about this movie is that it is irrigating a deep sense of despair and a complete lack of principle that seem to be coming more generalized in American culture. And that's what worries me most because I think that has spillover effects into every other domain of society. You know, if we want to build things like nuclear, these projects take a while. You know, everyone kind of has to agree to them. And you basically have to say, like, I want this future to continue to exist in some sort of similar way for an extended period of time. Somebody who's like... I don't really care about this project. It's done nothing for me. It doesn't matter. It's all bullshit. Who cares? Isn't really going to endorse that type of long-term hopeful strategizing and execution. What do you th I mean, I, again, I've been this morning just immersing myself, listening to Michael Malm interviews. Um, it's very inter interesting just the interviewers talking to him, um, you know, these folks um, on, the, on the radical left, uh, so-called climate thinkers, et cetera. Um, and they have these very fantastical kind of conspiratorial ideas about why we're just not getting off fossil fuels. You know, for instance, um, you know, the that the Russian invasion provided this great opportunity um, for for Europe to just keep pursuing wind and solar and replace that lost Russian gas. Uh, but instead, there's some kind of conspiracy going on 
um, that they're building LNG import facilities and signing contracts. Well, only one contract this long term, et cetera, right? Like there's no appreciation. Yeah, the conspiracy on the, of keeping the lights on. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, I mean, there's no, as you've, as I think you introduced me to this term, there's just absolutely no engineering discipline guiding this. The the main character's raison d'etre here is her mother or grandmother died in a heat wave. And in California, by the way, which right. during the last heat wave, natural gas served 60% of electricity demand. Air conditioning is kind of important in a heat wave. Yeah. 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 But okay. So I, I don't know if it's worth deep diving further. Um, the kind of psychology behind the naive politics there. Maybe they just speak for themselves. I do want to, you know, it's, it's not, this is not about devil's advocacy here, but like I'm thinking about, um, you know, acts, acts of sabotage, um, which, uh, you know, I'd be more sympathetic towards. I'm thinking about, you know, being in Central America and in like indigenous or rural agriculture communities that are fighting, you know, a gold mine that's going to displace and pollute um, their territory, their agricultural, their, you know, their means of production, their livelihoods. I'm very sympathetic to that, you know, particularly with the ways in which, you know, this often predatory mining companies are coming into jurisdictions with horrible labor and environmental standards and doing nasty things in people's backyards. I think it's very, very justified. Um, you know, there, there's examples like that. So how are those examples different from from what is being advocated for, explored in this movie? Yeah, so I think like there, first of all, I would say that the most like important thing that's happening in the those countries is that there is like the political contest is like very, very clear. And it's trying to answer a question of who benefits. Right. And it's about people trying to defend their livelihoods and things like this. It is not a self-selected few who decide that they have the moral right based on bad science to commit terrorism in quote-unquote self-defense, right? So I think their argument doesn't really make sense on its face. If somebody, if some major business, here's a great example, uh, if some major business rolls into your farm community and says, we want to put down seven square miles of solar panels on good farmland and steam rolls your town into it, which is happening, by the way. Robert Bryce just posted about this on LinkedIn. Uh, it's happened to a small community out in the Midwest. Uh, you get why people would want to commit sabotage or something like that. They are fighting for something that exists and is real and helps them put food on the table. These people are fighting for an abstraction that's incorrect. Like that, I think that that's like, that's the biggest difference to me. Like somebody's like, I'm defending my job. I'm defending my community. I'm doing this. These people are like, we're defending the world. As I've said on here, anytime somebody says they're defending the world, immediately lower your estimation of their moral credibility. Immediately. Whoever they are. They're going to be an insane person. Is this like this this faction of of the left? And I think it's actually quite a large one, as you say. I mean, in terms of the responses to this film coming from mainstream outlets like New York Times, uh, I'm not sure about the Ezra Klein situation. That would surprise me, but who knows? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, how do we as as a society or we as a, a group of thinkers respond to this phenomenon? Uh, do we try and speak to and win over? Um, this fringe environmental left, do we try and sort of prevent that contagion working into a broader group of people, particularly, you know, young people 
um, you know, who are often ones who will will uh, fight uh, for social causes, often in a, in a very positive way. Um, how do we how do we deal with these kind of ideas and, and cultural manifestations of ideas? Do you think? Because previ- previously yes. we said previously we said okay, let's let's not even talk about Mike, uh, Andreas Malm because he's irrelevant and he's an idiot. You know, so clearly we are responding yeah. now. But how, how? What's what's the best way in your opinion? Yeah, I think this is what keeps me up at night. This is literally what I journal about almost every other night before I go to bed. Uh, is what to do about this sort of like morale crisis. And I was just on a podcast, The Realignment, where towards the end of it, we talked about this. And I mean, first of all, I think one of the things that isn't necessarily helpful is to go around all the time and say like, wow, uh, the Zoomers struggled to have a lot of faith in the future, or not all of them, but you know, like a significant portion of them to the extent that it's like troubling us, Okay. Uh, and so don't at me on Twitter on this, uh, but, um, so we can go around all day seeing like, Oh, what do we do? What do we do? Look at all the data and that's fine. But it's like, who, like, what are we communicating to these kids about their country? Like I'm a patriot, but that doesn't keep me from recognizing defects in American history, crimes, problems. You know, it seems like there's this zero sum game where you're either an insane jingoist or you despise the place that you're from. I don't really think a polity can continue to survive if no one believes in its core premises. That doesn't seem likely to me over an extended period of time. So I think there needs to be some sort of meaningful engagement and dialogue with kids as they're coming up about America and why they should want to be here. And I also think that from those of us who are older and are empowered, there needs to be more fight for a future worth living in. You know, it's not like there's just this brain disease of people feeling sad and not liking the way things are that's going from carrier to carrier. You know, it's also that people are responding to things that they see every day, you know, And that's really important to address. So, but I don't know, like, right? Like I don't talk to these kids. My wife does because she works with them, but not in a capacity where she's just like, and this is why civics is important. You know, like that's not, that's not her job. Um, uh, So I, I don't totally know. I'm actually really at a loss because I've experienced such radical changes in my own internal life in regards to some of these questions over my 20s and now into my 30s, that it's almost like I don't have an account of what happened for me. I don't even know how to communicate that story. And so how would I know how to encourage these kids to change their minds? And certainly some of them might already agree with me. Some of them might be like, yeah, that stuff's weird. I don't like it. It bums me out. You know, I want to do a totally different positive thing. And that's great. I'm sure there are plenty of kids like that out there. That's fantastic. So I also think that part of it should be like finding those kids and empowering them because I think peer influence is really, really important. I think the more that they see themselves as helpless victims who are granted special status by their own sense of victimhood, the less likely they are to do anything salutary or productive for themselves or society. Oh man, brother. Instead, I mean, it, it will reduce it will reduce politics to competitive fear mongering 
in a war over the treasure box of the state for different identitarian and interest groups. You got away with words, Emmett. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I've talked about this a fair number of times. I won't go on at length about it because my listeners will beat me over the head. But, you know, this preoccupation as a a father now of a four and a half year old who still lives in like an incredibly non-toxic environment, you know, where he doesn't, you know, watches a little bit of cartoons and stuff, but like he's not plugged into, you know, Jonathan Hayes book, The Coddling of the American Mind is absolutely terrifying talking about this iGen, you know, the generation that grew up with an iPhone in their pocket, access to the internet and social media, you know, from the age of puberty onwards and what it's done, particularly to to girls' mental health, et cetera, the cruelty of social media, the engineering of attention spans, et cetera. I mean, it's it's a pretty terrifying world we're entering into. And when that's grafted onto, you know, the Greta Thunberg-inspired climate uh, doomerism and nihilism and anxiety, you know, I've said many times that the, the antidote to anxiety is empowerment. You know, I had an interesting interview with Ted Nordhaus, uh, which is back in the uh, in the um, in the archives. Uh, we were actually talking about the Cold War and that sort of Sputnik induced anxiety in America, which led to all these science clubs and rocketry clubs and this massive investment in education. Like, you know, if, if I ran the world, you know, and, and I was dealing with this kind of this, this situation of, of, you know, youth disengagement, like we do need that return to a sense of civics and civics duty banding together around a common cause. And yeah, let's flood the education system with with great educators and money to empower these kids to learn stuff, to say, hey, you're worried about the climate. Well, become an engineer, become, you know, become a scientist, become this, become that. I think part of the problem there. It's like this, this is like Timothy O'Leary, like tune in, drop out, like that I'm seeing reverberating right, right. into the modern yeah. moment. And, and yeah. tuning in and dropping out is, is, is you know, or blowing a pipeline are, are not ways that we're going to make make a better world, a better country, a better society. I mean, I think we also have some very gnarly selection effects in America that are happening too. Like the people who end up, a lot of them becoming teachers, are not the type of people that think that climate change is a technical problem that's solvable and that we're not standing on the brink of the apocalypse, right? Like that's that's a problem. That's a problem, you know? Like that is a – and I know that because the Chicago Teachers Union – when we were fighting to keep Byron and Dresden around, threw in with the Sierra Club and the NRDC against those nuclear plants. So the CTU is fine with destroying union jobs as long as they're not in Chicago, wow. right? Yeah. Like that's, that's part of what's going on here. So we can't be asleep to that. Like that's a real problem. I don't know how to solve it, but you can't ignore it either. You know, the other thing is like who ends up in the press? Who ends up like, go look at the reviews for this movie. Almost all of them are positive, you know, or they're at least like, man, like maybe they're talking on on the progressive side of the political spectrum, obviously, you know, Fox news. Yeah. But I mean, like who's done negative reviews like me and Kevin Kilo from Cowboy State Daily compared to what, like the New York times, the Washington post, like, you know, new Republic or whatever. I mean, Kate Aronoff wisely said that she did not think that mom's methods would work. And I appreciate someone from the left being very straightforward about that, but you know, like what, what's going on here, right? If, if, if we see this as an information system that is supposed to deliver people something approximating the truth, right? It's a democracy. That's going to be messy. It's pluralistic. They're going to be different ideas of that, but like there are some serious problems in the media in America that are highly negative and sometimes completely untrue assumptions about climate and about energy. And they are the acts. They are the biggest signals 
broadcasting those messages. So that's a problem too. You know, I, th I think I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself the honest question and trying to empathize with why these mainstream progressive thinkers are giving this movie positive reviews and, and endorsing essentially Malm's uh, theory of change to some degree or another, you know, whether however lukewarm that is. And it's because I think there's so few alternatives. I mean, and, and what, what I find really interesting is this growing phenomenon. We've heard of climate solution denialists that's usually leveraged against folks that are pro-nuclear or pro-fossil fuels or whatever. Um, or just very skeptical of renewables from an informed engineering discipline side of things. But now there's, you know, we saw it breakthrough with Planet of the Humans, the Jeff Gibbs uh, film, which Michael Moore um, sort of gave his blessing to and therefore went ultra viral, um, where there's this real anxiety with, you know, what's being promised by, um, you know, the Jesse Jenkins, um, the clean tech community is this kind of utopia of, you know, clean tech, which is going to just, you know, not really have any backdoor issues or you know, stuff behind the uh, on the kill floor behind the grocery shelves going on. Um, and there's a, a growing, you know, awareness. We've had Simon Michaud on the podcast several times, um, not in love with his sort of thinking about the solutions, but a very, you know, I think informed uh, person about the challenges of, of, you know, transition to what people are calling for. And there's this growing disillusion with that as well, which I think just feels further nihilism. Like, what are the options on the table? Um, if, you know, it's either kind of degrowth, or it's this bullshit clean tech utopia that's being offered, which is just, you know, inconsistent with, you know, material resources availability and physics, you know, it, 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 in some, some degree, I can, I can empathize, I guess, with the kind of floundering in progressive communities and, and maybe falling into this as like, there's, there's, you know, is it the worst of three choices of, of, you know, Malthusian nihilism, um, you know, utopian thinking, or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just trying to, well, I think, so I, I think, yeah, so I think part of what's happening is that, like, there's a profound sense of meaninglessness about life. And thinking the world's going to end solves that problem. I think that it's about that simple. Right? If there are existential stakes, you feel like empowered, you know what you need to do. And that's what I think is going on there. You know, and there are a lot of complex reasons why it has ended up uh, being this sort of message. Uh, some of its ideological path dependency, you know, all sorts of things. But I think that that's what's going on. And that's a at scale problem. It's very difficult to solve. I would also say that like sort of the problem with a lot of people like me, if I can be self-critical, um, is that we're fucking nerds um, and uh you know, there's a public image problem, right? Like, I'm not a nice guy. Like, that's a big problem for this, right? Like, I think so. Like, that's a limitation that I have as a person, right? So we need better ambassadors for our ideas. And another thing that I think all of us need to stop doing is bitching about hypocrisy. That is like the worst thing you can do if you're in our position. I used to not think that, now I do. And let me tell you why. All you do when you say, oh, well, this person doesn't abide by their own rules. The implicit message there is I'm weak and they're powerful. And that's the story. What's the concrete example of that, of that abstraction? Oh, oh. Just give oh, us a like couple. Give us Al a couple. Al Gore wants us to reduce our carbon footprints, but he flies 80 planes a day right. or whatever. Right. You know, I've said this, like, you know, and stuff like that. All that tells me, like, what people need to understand is that it's not hypocrisy, it's hierarchy. And so when you say, oh, that's hypocrisy, what you're actually saying, broadcasting to everybody is, there's a hierarchy and I'm not at the top. It's a waste of time. 
And all it does is entrench your inferior status and then make you feel resentful, which is like drinking poison, hoping that the other guy's going to die. Totally unconstructive. Like that has to stop. Also, it makes you look like a loser and no one wants to hang out with losers. Like I'm breaking my own heart here. Like people can go back to some stuff I've written and see that I, I make this plan, right? But I'm actually criticizing myself here. It's something that over the past two years, I've really done some soul searching on. And I think it has to end. So I guess to close up, Emmett, what, like what's, what's, what's your prescription? And obviously we're building it, right? We're, we're constructing it. We're part of, you know, a movement, I think, however loosely affiliated that is, you know, in terms of a group of thinkers and content creators, if you want to kind of de- take on that, that modern label. Um, what do you see emerging? What, what sort of uh, tendencies do you see growing? I mean, in terms of the alternative to what's being offered up by this film to, you know, our, our generation and, and to those generations coming. I know that's a huge abstract question with tons to unpack there, but I'm just trying to evoke some kind of a, a positive path forward. I mean, so I had a, I just recorded a great conversation with Alex Trembath for nuclear barbarians that I think should be coming out next week. Um, and, uh, one of the things that he talked about, which I thought was was kind of inspiring, is that uh, one of the things that we might want to pay attention to and maybe even rely on going forward are the internal contradictions in the environmental ideology. All this renewable stuff began with a, as a small-scale dream, but now that it's trying to be built out at a large scale, it will become clear that it's untenable. That's just going to happen. So being there on deck with a positive message as that whole thing falls apart is going to be very, very important. You know, Alex also, I think, made a great case that sort of breakthrough VN thought that's a little more positive is slowly gaining ground against these environmental orgs. And as you've seen in Canada, it is possible to flip people. Like, I'm glad also in America that Gavin Newsom wants to run for president. And he's like, I can't shut down Diablo Canyon and San Francisco can't look like a demilitarized zone. You know, like that, like that can't happen for me. You want your politician's selfish ambition to be in line with the public good. And that's what's happening. Could it have happened sooner and better? Yes. Is Gavin rewarding himself for letting a hostage go? Yes. But who cares if it keeps the plant on? Same thing with Jennifer Granholm and Palisades in Michigan. If that plant wasn't in Michigan where she was governor, I don't think the DOE would be trying as hard to help Holtec save it. And we should be thankful for that, you know? And so I think focusing on our wins is hugely important. Every time we get a dub, we should be like, you know, strapping 50 megaphones together and screaming to our neighbors about it. You know, like that is really, really important. And so I think that as these things get messier, as their internal contradictions start to split them apart, uh, sort of standing astride the tumult of history and offering a new way forward is going to be incredibly inspiring for the people that want to be inspired. And it won't be everyone, right? But it just needs to be enough. It, I don't really like that creepy minoritarian stuff that like Paul Ehrlich, you know, where they're just like, we just need 5% of people. Cause I think that there's something like gross and conspiratorial about that and like anti-democratic, right, like, right, right. but you do need just, just the critical mass, you know, 
to change things. And that is really, really important. The other way I look at it is this. If they can win, so can we. The Green Movement is looking at corporate America and the war machine and the utility industry in the 60s and 70s and watching it and its core premises and its legitimacy fall apart in front of their very eyes. And they're already there with their message. They're motivated and they're going to start changing things. What happened back then is starting to happen to them now. And we can be a part of how that changes. And so I'm not a doomer, right? Like I am, I am on board for the American project. I love this country. I think that we can change it for the better. I think it can even be bipartisan, which is really important. I think we're already getting glimpses that for nuclear, that's already going to happen and will continue to happen. And I hope it does because that is vital. Um, and that's where I'm at. I mean, I have to say, you know, on the Canadian front, it's it's just amazing watching the anti-nuclear lobby fall like a house of cards. Um, it is a you know a boomer phenomenon um, bereft of of, an, of optimism and hope and faith in humanity. Um, yeah. I just I just debated sort of the the emblematic leader of the kind of Canada's anti-nuclear movement. He's been at this for forty eight years. He's an eighty three year old man. You know, hats off to him. Incredible stamina. Um, you know, quite an intelligent guy, particularly given his age. Um, but the the sun is is uh, setting on those folks, and it's been yeah. just absolutely incredible. <laughs> I mean, you know, I confronted Canada's uh, Minister of Environment and Climate Change, a former Greenpeace activist who, in a stunt, rappelled off of the CN Tower at that time, the world's tallest tower. Uh, I think it was around a climate change issue. A staunch anti-nuclear activist confronted him at, in Glasgow and in, at COP26 uh, two and a half years ago, and he just ate humble pie. Um, and endorse nuclear to save his job. I mean, this guy's got no principles. Um, but as you say, we got to celebrate these Great. Kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> the, hey, look, yeah. you see one of those people with no principles. What you should say to yourself is their principles should be mine. <laughs> and that is possible with someone without any. <laughs> All right, Emmett. Um, we'll leave it there, Matt. It's, it's been a blast. And uh, yes, uh, I will see you in person in three dimensions um, in San Francisco very shortly at the Breakthrough Dialogues. Um, one more shout out um, to Nuclear Barbarians, uh, to Grid Brief. Uh, that is, I think, one of the most undersubscribed. Um, you know, the ratio between quality and subscription is way off there. So everybody should stop with the right now and, and sign <laughs> yeah, up for that. Yeah, fix that for me, people. And uh, Emmett, you did a great job with being the hype man on the intro. So I'm going to let you do the outro here. Take it away, whatever you feel like. Hey, look, you know, I... I talk, I talk smack. I talk a big game. I get that I might say things that people might not like in here. That's fine. You don't have to completely agree with me, and I don't have to completely agree with you to agree on what the solutions are. And that's the most important thing. I hope things that I said here were provocative and helpful for people, and I hope that you can continue to subscribe and listen to Decouple. Stay, there we go. What about the stay radiant, stay classy stuff? That's what I'm looking for. Oh, yeah. Stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant, folks. We will see you next time. (laughs) Love it. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.